Welcome to Ideas Goes Abroad. We are Marlinda and Camila, two students of the Master Program International Development Studies at Utrecht University. For our studies, the whole class was spread out over the Global South to conduct field research. From Sudan to Costa Rica, from Vietnam to South Africa. From remote villages and rainforests to metropolises and tourist hotspots. We're here to bring you stories from our fellow students who have done research and lived on the other side of the world. In each episode, we learn about their adventures and cherished moments and how they managed to do their research while dealing with cultural shocks. In this episode, we're talking with Ian, a fellow student and avid traveler. He was in Uganda, where he researched the impacts of a large infrastructural project on the communities living in slums. This is a very special episode in our series because Ian lived in Kampala, the largest city of Uganda, with his classmate and friend Emily. Together, they decided to stay in Africa despite the pandemic, experiencing a full lockdown. Hi. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're very happy to have you here and to talk to you about your very special experience in the class of ideas of 2020. So, Ian, let's start right away with a burning question. Uh, all our fellow IDS students had to come back to Europe during the corona outbreak and you were the only ones who actually decided willingly to stay and live in the original research area. Can you tell us a bit about the weeks of the decision on whether to stay or to leave and how did you experience that? Yeah, sure. So uh, what happened is, of course, the outbreak started and it spread around the world, but by that time, it hadn't hit Uganda yet, so there was no COVID in Uganda. Um, everything was chill, everything was easy, and actually, I was still continuing my research. I had just started, as most of us had. I ha I don't think I had even gone to the community to do my actual uh, data collection yet. I had just visited the community with these kind of participatory events that were being held. So... I was very eager and excited to start my research and the process had taken so long that I was just like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to abandon this. Naive, though, it might be, <laughs> because, of course, the situation changed over time. I think what he really helped me in making that choice was the fact that I was not alone. I was with Emily, who is a very good friend of mine, and this was not an impulsive decision, you know, we talked about it a lot. So we discussed it with our supervisor, we discussed it with our family and friends, we discussed it with other classmates, and basically everyone told us to come back. <laughs> but we were too, we were too stubborn to come back. I think it was a bit of a risky decision. But I'm very glad I made it because in the end, I was able to complete my research and have the time of my life. How long did you stay in Uganda? Uh, almost seven months, like wow. a week short of seven months. And I was planned to be there for three and a half months. So basically double the time that I was supposed to spend there. And of that time, about two and a half months were in lockdown. Uh, so at the end of March, it started. Basically, I think we had about a week to decide, really we are going to leave because by that time the lockdown started or first it was like partial lockdown and it got stricter over time so it was kind of quick and then all our classmates because we were eight people in Uganda 
from our cohort, but everyone went home. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough decision and you took really a risky decision, but it paid off. And uh, during the 2.5 months of lockdown, how were the weeks? How did you survive? How did you entertain yourself? What did you do? Yeah, so it was really hard, of course. The longer it went on, the more difficult it became. In the beginning, you know, you go for walks. At least we could go outside. Um, it was fine to walk. There was just no transport, so you couldn't go anywhere. But you can walk in your area. So you go for a walk, but then you find out that actually everything that is around you is garbage dumps and slums. <laughs> There's not really something fun to see. Uh, I love Kampala, don't get me wrong, but it's not like there's a lot of sightseeing to do and there's not a lot of green space. So there's not really much you can do. So basically you just stay at home and you go to the market for your groceries and for your shopping. Shops and stuff were still open. And then in June, the lockdown eased a little bit. We were able to go to places again. Tra uh, public transport was running again. So, yeah, then we used to move around again. Nice. And did you visit other places other than Kampala? Yeah, also not before the lockdown. So it was pretty crazy because we basically were like five months only in Kampala. And it was just so boring. <laughs> like, as I said, there was nothing, no, nothing to do. Kampala is a city of nightlife. You party, but there's not really any sites to speak of, um, I would say. So if you want to see anything really beautiful, you have to go out of Kampala. And Uganda is an amazing country. I can recommend everybody to visit. Basically, all the stereotypical African nature experiences are there. There are wild rivers and waterfalls. There's jungles with gorillas. There are safaris with so many animals. Beautiful mountains to hike. Cute little villages in the mountains to visit. Tea and coffee plantations. You know, so there's really everything that you want is there. They don't call it the Pearl of Africa for nothing. It has a reason and it's it's really beautiful. So, um, yeah, I definitely visited a lot of places, but only after the lockdown and after I had done most of my research. So it was very nice to finally leave the big smoke of Kampala after <laughs> spending five months there. <laughs> So the whole country went into lockdown, right? Yeah. How did the Ugandan government cope with it? I think in the beginning, I was very impressed because we know what happened in Europe and most countries are really struggling to keep it under control. I think it also has to do with privilege. People here don't want to listen to rules. They don't want to be limited in their freedom, you know, and in Uganda, you don't really have that choice. You have to comply uh, or else you get caned. <laughs> Literally, there was a curfew and the curfew at seven. And if you're still out by around seven, then <laughs> the police officers will come running after you with canes to beat you. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's enforced. And I would I have to say it's good and bad because I was very impressed. They were able to keep the virus under control for very long, as far as we know. We don't know. There might have been other cases that we don't know about because testing capacity was quite limited yeah. in the beginning. But of course, at what cost? You know, most people in Uganda live under the poverty line and they call them hand to mouth mm. uh, laborers. So basically what you work today is what you're going to eat tonight. Mm -hmm. 
So if you cannot work because there's a lockdown, you don't have anything to feed your family. The government was giving out emergency food aid once, and it was a bag of beans, which most of our friends said were rotten or too hard to cook, and either some rice or some uh, maize flour to cook with, but basically enough for one week for one family, but not including the fuel, the charcoal on which people cook. So you might have some food, but you don't have the charcoal to cook it on. Wow. Um, it was tough. Yeah. I think, I mean, this is also what some media outlets said, you know, that there is this, there's this narrative about Africa when COVID hits is dramatic, but it's actually not COVID. What's the problem? It's people not being able to work, which is causing people to mm -hmm. die of starvation. Yeah. Um, so that, that was definitely happening over there, uh, during the lockdown. So I think even though they coped with the virus, well, all the socioeconomic issues that were caused by the lockdown were extreme. Of course. And were there other organizations that were providing food, uh, or was it only the government that was able to do so? Uh, because it was all provided through the government, other organizations were not allowed to give emergency aid because basically the opposition leader, he started handing out food in the slum areas of Kampala, which is where his stronghold and his support base is, the young people, young, ed uneducated, but connected through the internet people. And the president didn't like that. So he shut it down real quick and said, no, only the government's official task force is allowed to give uh, emergency food rations. Of course, through time, some exceptions came like the Red Cross, you know, some really like respected international organizations. But I would say it was uh, very little, very few. And then there were some individuals that were giving some aid in their in their neighborhood secretly, but it was actually not allowed. And the president even said in his speech that anyone who is caught uh, giving out food can be charged with attempted murder. Because basically he said, when you're giving food aid to people, you can be spreading the virus in these vulnerable communities. Yeah. So Ian, can you tell us a little bit about the main focus of the research that you did and uh, the topics and the concepts that you used? Yeah, sure. So um, my research was on how people's mobility and livelihoods are affected by large-scale infrastructure projects in Kampala, Uganda. I studied three different informal settlements, basically to allow also for a comparison within and between the settlements. And uh, I wanted to find out how people are affected differently, uh, what kind of groups might benefit, what kind of groups might, you know, have more harm. But mainly the focus was on uh, mobility. So the Kampala Jinja Expressway is a project that is a big development corridor project. It's part of a larger infrastructure project to connect Uganda to the Kenyan port of Mombasa because Uganda is a landlocked country, so they rely on a lot of imports. The project is basically made to help these imports. So basically this uh, research is about the impacts of this infrastructural project, right? Yes. Okay, and this infrastructure project, is it already been built or is it something in the future that they're going to build and they're like doing uh, research now on the potential impacts? 
Yeah, uh, it's indeed uh, the latter. So it hasn't been built yet. It hasn't been constructed yet. And the project is still in its implementation phase. So it has been confirmed. It's going to happen. But the construction hasn't started yet. There are some rumors as to whether the construction has started in other parts of the corridor, because it's quite a long way. But it hasn't started in the settlements where I was uh, doing my research. And people have actually been waiting some of them for seven years for this project to start. So they've some of some people have been told seven years ago that they might have to move. They are going to be evicted, but they still haven't been compensated or evicted. That is insane. Such a long yeah. amount of time. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us about the data collection? Like, how did it go? Because you said that uh, you made interviews, but how did it look like at the beginning? Was it difficult to approach the people? Yeah, um, it was a bit of a struggle, <laughs> as I think it is for most of us. You have to deal with the cultural differences, uh, difference in perception of time and stuff like that. It was a bit of a problem getting to the communities at first, because first we we had contact with our host organization. But when we arrived in the country, uh, it turned out that they were not that involved yet in the project. Uh, and that it was actually another organization that they were partnered with, an NGO that was involved with community participation in this specific project. So what we did, we were linked to that NGO and we started attending events that they were holding in the communities to kind of get an entry point into the community. And not only that, it was also one of my data collection methods, actually, because I used the observations from these events uh, to inform my research. So, for example, in the event, some people said these are the issues that we are dealing with in a community. Like we are waiting for compensation. We're waiting for UNRWA, which is the Uganda National Roads Authority, to come and compensate us. We want more information. We want this. We want that. So all kind of problems were addressed in those meetings. So they also informed the questions that I would ask later in my interviews. So yeah, it was a bit, it, it was like a process, you know, it took a long time. I would say it took almost two months before I actually started doing my interviews properly. Uh, maybe one and a half months, but in the end it, uh, yeah, it worked well. Uh, and I would just like to briefly uh, add something to that because I was uh, already talking a little bit with Ian before the podcast and he mentioned that how many interviews did you do? Uh, I'm not sure. But it would be between like 110 or 120. Wow. <laughs> so that's quite impressive. I think something to mention. Ian, you just briefly mentioned that there were some cultural obstacles while doing the research. Could you maybe uh, tell us a bit more about the cultural obstacles you encountered also in a more general sense in your day-to-day -day life there and also as part of the research? Yeah, sure. Um, I think in general, I would say Uganda is a very open country and it's very easy actually to get along well with people there. It was funny because we were living in, a, in an apartment building with a lot of Indian people, Indian Ugandans. And uh, sometimes I, I had like a, a guy who came to cut my hair during the lockdown. So he came to our place and then he also had some Indian customers there. And we were joking that like, about them a little bit because sometimes they were acting a little bit strange he thought so he, i was like joking that 
even though we come from different parts of the world, like we can level and get along easier than he can with the Indian Ugandans. <laughs> so I would say in general, it's a very open country. There are some things that I just, that are very hard for me to deal with though. So first of all, in a way, people are sometimes very close-minded because it's very religious and quite conservative. So I would say in general, people are, mm, I'm not sure people, but the culture and the country can be a little bit homophobic. And not only that, also quite sexist as well. So if you're with a woman, the woman is quite objectified and everything. So these are just things that don't fit with my own values. So when people were saying things about that, then it was a bit, you know, not so nice. But I would say that wasn't really that much of a daily thing. The things that I found annoying on the on the daily were two things. So first, there was the, the time aspect. Everything takes ages. Everything takes long and no one keeps to the time. Uh, and I'm always late myself. I tend to be late. I was always late in class. I don't know if you guys remembered. <laughs> but then I would enter maybe like five or ten minutes later, you know, not two hours or three hours. Uh, but it is what it is. Like if you're in, in these communities, it's very informal. So people that work in these communities that do community work, that do NGO work or leaders, they walk around to go to their appointment, but they keep being stopped along the way by people that know them, to talk to them, to help them, to discuss some case or whatever. So I do understand where it comes from. But the same thing applies to the transport, you know, the jams. It just takes so long to get anywhere. So that were those were things that I was struggling with a little bit. And the second thing that I really disliked personally is it seems like most Ugandans are conspiracy theorists. <laughs> How so? Um... Some of the issues were, for example, about COVID, let's say. So most because it took a long time to get there in Uganda, like it was COVID free for some time when it all hell was breaking loose in in China and Italy and, and France, you know, like those first hit countries, really. It was still very quiet over there. So people didn't believe that it was real. So when the lockdown started, people were just pissed and they didn't want to keep to the rules. And I do understand that, but this also applies in other ways. For example, never believing what anyone says, like very suspicious of, of everything. You would say that in general, the, the levels of trust is quite low in people around them. Did you also experience that yourself towards people there? What I found is that for a country where people seem to never trust each other, they are completely fine with me as an outsider. Um, it is problematic. There is definitely this idea of a white savior, but the which I hate because I'm not there to save anyone. I just want to level with you and talk with you because I enjoy meeting people and I enjoy talking to you. And once you explain that and make that clear, people are also happily surprised because unfortunately they are used to white saviors. Most people who come to Uganda are either tourists who have a lot of money usually because going on a safari ain't cheap. <laughs> and then there is that... Uh, the other group, missionaries, 
most development workers, development practitioners are some kind of Christian missionary organization, I would say. And they operate, in my opinion, on such a problematic basis where it's all about their ideology. You know, they do a lot of good work. Don't get me wrong. They do very good development work sometimes, but it's the conditions with which it comes, which are so appalling to me. So there is that idea of who and what a white person is. And if you see in Kampala, most white people are locked up behind their gates and they never come out. They don't go walk on the street. They don't go walking through these informal settlements. But when you do, people are surprised. And I found that that created kind of a level often of mutual respect where you realize we are really not that different than what we think or what we might assume. I think for me, because of my previous life experiences, I already had that feeling. But for a lot of people there, I think it, it might have been sometimes eye-opening, but also just fun to talk to a foreign person or a white person as someone who is equal to you instead of someone that either puts themselves on a pedestal or that you're putting on a pedestal. So... I never mistrusted people. You know, Emily and I, we usually had this these conversations like we really trust our intuition. And even though you can get into messy situations sometimes, I think 99% of the time our intu intuition was correct. We never experienced and we were never done any harm. We were never robbed. You know, we were taken advantage of a couple of times, but nothing too serious. So... I think trusting people is the right way to go. Yeah, you said really relevant stuff, especially about the white savior complex. I see it's becoming really um, relevant in the social media world, especially at least in, in the people that I follow. And I think it's very valuable advice for future students who do research in developing countries where their color of the skin is really different from the majority of the people. And that comes with a burden, like a burden not to show privilege in that sense or make use of the privilege in a very wrong way, I have to say, like a very unethical way. Um, I, I wanted to ask you also, what, what was your support group like? Who was it uh, made of? Was it students? Was it friends you met? Was it neighbors? Well, of course, first and foremost, it was Emily because we knew each other before we left, you know, we had classes together, we worked together sometimes, but I would have never thought that I would find a soulmate, actually. Like, we got so close throughout that time. She's one of my best friends now, so I don't think there's anyone that I would have wanted to go through this together, except for her. So I'm very happy I was able to meet her and, and experience this with her. Besides her, there were other people. There was a... Uh, Latoya, she's our, she was actually our landlady, but she became our friend. We had other friends there that we went on trips with, that we, you know, basically people we met at parties or through other people. So by the end, we actually had accumulated quite a network of friends and people that we knew that we, you know, sometimes they would come to our house, we would have a party, a house party. Uh, sometimes we would go out, but that was not really possible anymore in the end because all bars and things were closed, of course. But um, yeah, like I, I would say we, we I had a decently sized support group. And then, of course, there were the other peers of our program that I was sometimes talking to, like online, my family, friends, partner, people back home. 
So it sounds like you felt at home there and you really integrated as well. What parts of the culture did you feel really connected to and what have you learned from the culture that you could take home? I think what was really nice for me is, as I said before, Uganda is a very open country with a very open culture. So I'm quite used to traveling to countries with a more closed culture where people are a bit more closed off and reserved. That is not the case. <laughs> Ugandans are not reserved at all, which I love because I tend to see myself as a bit of an introvert, but I think I'm not <laughs> because, you know, when everybody just starts talking to you, I know this is like because I'm white or whatever, but partially not, you know, people are just very outgoing there. They're very friendly and often there might be something underneath it. Maybe someone wants to benefit from you in some way but when you're aware of this it's fine you know you can choose to engage or not you can also choose to engage without giving someone the sense that they're going to benefit from you because what i found is that even when people were asking me for money when you start having a conversation with them they also respect you as an as an equal person and just want to talk to you so really the openness is something i don't think i've ever experienced anywhere that's something that i i will take home with me and also ugandans are so eloquent they're so well spoken i was shocked you know i'm used to to dutch people they're so crude <laughs> they don't make full sentences they don't they're not well spoken you know and ugandans you know some who speak luganda you know i couldn't really understand them although i i did learn a few words of course but the politeness the all the respect that is in the language and then that translates to english as well and just sometimes i was listening to people and they even get calls in the middle of the conversation so they pick up a call they have a call they hang up when they when they hang up the phone uh they continue as is, as if nothing happened for me i would never be able to do that like i would have to you know think about whoa what was i talking about like i'm a mess But they are, and most of them, they're so well-spoken. So it's the openness, but also just the, the way of communicating. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I would like to go back to the research uh, to discuss a few more things. Uh, so first of all, uh, what were your main findings of the research, at least? I mean, I know you're still writing it, but what are the main observations that you made? Yeah, so there were certain things that surprised me. First of all, there is that idea that we have in a lot of development studies kind of research that people have this place attachments. Like, oh, I really want to live here and I don't want to lose my home. People don't care. <laughs> The people that I've spoken to, they want to leave. I mean, would you want to live somewhere where your house gets flooded every time it rains? No. The question is, though, how does this infrastructure project come in? Because... It hasn't happened yet, so I basically wanted to see what is it like now and how is it going to change. So most people actually really didn't know what is going to happen. It's probably very difficult for people to predict what will be the change, right? I mean... Yes, so because they don't know when are they going to be compensated, how much are they going to receive, and if they're going to be compensated at all. Yeah. Because most people living in those informal settlements are effectively squatters. On government land. This was a strategic choice to build that road there. 
because it's government land, it's a wetland. So actually, if the safeguards that are surrounding the project due to the funders, the World Bank and other funders that give money to this project were not there, those people could just be evicted without any payments because they're effectively squatting. But they bought land. They have their their agreements, you know. There's all these kinds of different informal land tenure systems. They actually bought that land from someone. But the government doesn't always recognize these kinds of informal land tenure. So people are just very suspicious and a bit afraid about the compensation. So that's another thing. If you don't know how much you're going to receive and when, you cannot really plan for the future. That's what most people told me. So people were just waiting, at, yeah, kind of in vain. Some people even said that we're waiting, but we're waiting in vain. Other people, they were not waiting in vain. <laughs> they were pissed. <laughs> Some people, I, I spoke to a guy and he said, I'm living here like this is my place. If I don't get money, I'm ready to die for this project. Wow. He said, I cannot do this. Like I need to receive money because... Otherwise, where can, what am I going to do? I mean, when someone says that to you, what can you, how do you respond? You know, it's, it's shocking. Yeah. I, he really had me quiet for some time. Um, but then you realize that it's, it's actually desperation. Yeah, what can you do? I wanted to ask you, you told us a lot, like you had so many powerful experiences, but what were the main difficulties and obstacles that you encountered while networking with people and while just conducting your research apart from the pandemic, of course? Yeah, apart from the COVID situation, there were other things that were that made it difficult. Um, I think I ran into a lot of ethical issues with my guides and my host organization and doing my research. So actually, it turns out I only found that out at the end of my research that all three of my guides were campaigning because they were running for a political position. <laughs> so I don't think they were doing that while we were doing the research. They were usually keeping it quite separate. But there was one guy. So <laughs> one of them... <laughs> He was basically, he had his own small CBO, community-based organization, which was linked to the organization that I was working with. And it seems like he was always also spreading his own development agenda while being with me for my research. Of course, like, this was like pure tokenism, you know? You're there as a white person, so that seems like there's some big funder or donor behind you. And sometimes I catch... I caught words in Luganda or English, you know, they use a lot of English in their own language too. And I was just thinking, you're saying things that do not apply. You're making promises that we cannot keep. So that was a big problem. How to deal with that? I'm not sure. You know, you just keep going. Whenever he did the introduction, I was sure to always do my own introduction as well with, you know, spent five minutes about on expectation management really before every interview Make sure that people understand why are you there? What are you doing? Who are you? Who are you with? Also very important, who are you not with? Because you're coming there as an outsider and people have been waiting, as I said, six, seven years for this project. Are you with this UNRWA? Are you with the government? Are you with the NGO? You really have to make sure that people know why you're there. They might not believe you. 
that's another thing. But at least you've told them. So that is a big point of advice I would give to anyone doing research on this. Expectation management is the most important part of your whole research. Expectation management with the host organization, with your partners, with the people that you're working together with in the field, and especially your participants. Because if they don't trust you, it's not going to work. <laughs> wow, I feel like I have to say amen to this because it felt like such a good preach. No, I mean, apart from the joke, it's such good advice for... Mama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we haven't been told about the expectation management, of course, and people, rightly so, are waiting for answers and they see a white person and they're like, ah, this is the answer. This is what they're going to do. We're almost at the end of the episode, but we have one last question for you, which is, what was your favorite moment of your time in Uganda? Yeah, so I don't think it was the research related. I just really loved being there. And at the end of, the, of my stay there, we were also able to go on some trips. So uh, we went on some different trips with friends. And I think my favorite moment was when we went to Sippy Falls, which is a really beautiful area with in the mountains with a lot of waterfalls and it's super green. There's farms and everything. It's just beautiful. So I think that was definitely my favorite moment because we spent like a weekend there. And of course, also Emily and I, we both celebrated our birthday in Uganda and we had like a really cool birthday party where we invited a lot of friends and even a lot of random people came. We were just dancing in our living room and, you know, just having a lot of fun. So I think the parties and the trips were definitely the, the best part of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And what impressed you the most of your whole experience? What impressed me, I think... Um, I think the open-mindedness and the resilience of Ugandans, you know... When you are there, you don't really realize sometimes how bad the situation is. But there is a reason why these development projects are there and why it's happening the way that it is. Like there are a lot of problems. So I was sometimes shocked at how relaxed people were about it and how resilient they were in the face of such, such adverse consequences. And amazed, to be honest, like I don't think I could do that myself. They are so strong and I don't want to create this like victim narrative, but it's just, yeah, like, I really look up to the people there, actually, the people that I've met, like my friends and also the people that I've worked with. I have so much respect to them so that they like I would say the people just impressed me so, so much every day. Wow, that really sounds impressive. I can completely understand that you're impressed by this and um, your whole experience sounds so amazing and interesting and it sounds like you've learned some really valuable life lessons during your almost seven months in Uganda and I'm really happy um, that we could also learn from them today so thank you so much for sharing your insights with us yeah it was really nice to talk to you guys so thanks for having me
Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Ian's episode. And if you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could share it on your socials. For more information on the guest fieldwork experience, visit our Instagram, Ideas Goes Abroad. Thank you for listening. Thank you.